Welcome to another episode of the Middle West Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Musa. Assalamu alaikum. I'm joined by my co-host, Lina Farhat. Assalamu alaikum, everyone. And we're joined remotely today uh, by Ahmed Swalhi. Assalamu alaikum. And our guest for today, also joining us remotely, uh, is Dr. Sufyan Ali. Uh, assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum assalam. So Dr. Ali is a uh, GP uh, by day. Uh, he also works in the health tech industry with a startup. Uh, he's also uh, the... Uh, head of advocacy at BIMA, which is the British Islamic Medical Association. Um, so today is a uh, coronavirus-focused episode um, that do- uh, Dr. Ali will spe- uh, shed a little bit of light on for us. He'll also talk a little bit about what BIMA does. Um, and uh, yeah, so let's start off with doc- uh, Dr. Ali, a little bit about your background. Um, where, where are you from? Where did you train? What got you into medicine? Um, so yeah, so born and brought up in Glasgow, studied in Aberdeen, uh, came back to Glasgow, worked in Singapore for a couple of years. Oh wow! Uh, came back, came back to Glasgow again because it just draws me back. <laughs> and uh, finished my GP training, then decided to go to London to work with a health tech startup while doing a master's in health policy. So I mean, to start off, what what is health tech? So health tech is, is like a massive subject, to be honest. Well, yeah, you could, anything could be health tech. Essentially, you can, from my point of view, I'm focusing more on primary care health tech. So essentially improving access to care, um, working on diagnostic equipment so that um, yeah, patients can be seen from different places. Artificial intelligence or, or synthetic intelligence can diagnose patients um, and essentially making the system a bit more efficient because we've got a lack of doctors, we've got a lack of equipment, so we need to use technology to improve that. But you mentioned what is health tech. It can vary from developing sensors to developing software to, um, to be honest, anything. Um, it's a vast, vast subject. That sounds pretty cool. Can you give us an example of something innovative that you've worked on or, or come by? Yeah, I mean, it's essentially the what we're currently working on, actually. So we've got a, a big grant, uh, so a half a million pound grant, to work mm-hmm. on a, kind of a diagnostic system to be able to manage patients um, without very much doctor input. So currently, through MedicSpot, <laughs> we've got stations, over 300 stations across the UK in pharmacies, uh, which are basically connected up with stethoscopes, pulse oximeters, uh, blood pressure machines, fiber optic cameras. So that currently doctors sitting anywhere else in the world can actually examine a patient in, for example, Earl's Court in London. Uh, but what we're wanting to do is this data that we're collecting through the stethoscope, which is obviously electronic data, we want to be able to, um, yeah, for that data to be automatically uh, coded um, and a diagnosis to be made, or the fiber optic cameras looking at the back of the throat to be able to identify whether it's tonsillitis or not, right. whether it's an ear infection. So, yeah, so that's we're currently working on that at the moment. Um, other stuff that we've worked on is actually uh, urine infections, so that essentially patients can, if they've got symptoms of urine, uh, urine infection, they do the urine test themselves, they take a picture of it, it tells them what the likelihood of urine infection is, it goes through our algorithm and a prescription gets printed if needed. So, um, so with this, so with this uh, remote medicine um 
applications that you're speaking about just to sort of um, dive into to the topic so so the theme, theme of this episode is the coronavirus um, pandemic happening I've heard a lot of doctors talk about um, especially GPs talk about sort of remotely seeing their patients and triaging and all that so where do you see um, what you're doing as being um, you know applied to um, that pandemic that's happening yeah I mean I think so there's a lot of negatives around COVID-19, but one of the massive positives is the pace at which the GPs across the UK have taken up video consultations. So I know across Scotland, uh, essentially, the kind of Ministry of Health essentially uh, installed webcams into multiple different GP practices within the last two or three weeks so that uh, GPs can manage patients remotely. Um, and this Essentially, one of the reasons why there's been a reluctance, well, one of the reasons why tech doesn't get taken up that quickly is reluctance from clinicians. And mm-hmm. this has almost forced clinicians to take up this video consultations. And the, most of the feedback has been positive, uh, which, to be honest, I already know it was going to be positive because I've been working in the kind of health tech field for the last two and a half years. Um, so what's happening essentially is that patients can get seen f- remotely. Patients that are actually higher risk from an infection point of view can get seen in a room where there's no other clinician there. So reducing the risk to the clinician of, for example, coronavirus, though obviously the equipment would need to clean afterwards if they were positive. Um, so essentially we're seeing more patients because of coronavirus, because they've basically forced video consultations into practices. And we're seeing the safety of being able to manage through video consultations as well. Um, and I think we shouldn't stop here. I think we should go further and use the remote diagnostic equipment um, and start looking at, you know, we should be at the forefront of innovation as kind of Muslim clinicians, uh, rather than reacting to things going wrong. I can imagine that has that sort of splits splits the camp a little bit because I can imagine one side will um, have, you know, the same opinion as you, and um, you know, encourage this innovation and you know this kind of remote way of, of examining and, and diagnosing patients. But um, have you come across a camp of, of doctors who actually, or even healthcare professionals, that feel that actually this is, you know, it might possibly compromise patient safety because there isn't that face to face interaction, that traditional way of you know diag- examination and diagnosis. What have you what have you found? Definitely, and I've found that actually myself as well, in that there are certain circumstances where you are not able to manage the patient remotely. Mm. Um, and essentially, in those cases, you manage in the normal way. So essentially, we, through MedicSpot, have found that 90% of the patients that have presented to MedicSpot have been able to manage via video consultations. And we've got a very low threshold to say, that's fine, we can't manage it. We need to see you face-to-face. We need to get you seen face-to-face because patient safety is the the priority. Uh, So there are certain circumstances, but actually the majority of cases you can manage remotely. Right. Uh, So, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. So I think bringing it back again, uh, probably a bit earlier on um, the start of the podcast, um, you know, me, me and Ahmed are from medical backgrounds, but, you know, Thaqib, for example, isn't and a lot of our listeners aren't. So, you know, coronavirus, there's been a lot of a lot of hype about it, a lot of, you know, you know, everywhere you everything you open practically is, is about it. So taking things back to basics, um, I think it's important to actually um, not, you know, for this podcast, not only to kind of you know shed some light on some misconceptions but also to allay concerns but also to highlight actually just how um you know just how serious this is at the moment really so um coronavirus what makes it novel you know how is it spread and and 
how does it compare to, you know, for example, the 2009 swine flu? Um, you know, what makes it different? Uh, so is, it, is this for me? Yeah, yeah. If, um, whoever, whoever, chip in, feel free. <laughs> I don't know. I've got a bad habit of talking and talking and go talking ahead, and not stopping. So I need to be told when to You know, it so, sounds like you should host a podcast because uh, <laughs> that's what we try to do. Well, 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 let me start off then. Essentially, um, novel just means new. So basically, it's a new type of coronavirus that we found uh, that basically has never infected humans in the past. We know that coronaviruses have infected humans in the past, as you mentioned, the kind of swine flu, uh, also MERS as well. Um, so, um, so essentially, this has happened. Similar, similar has happened in the past, but not with this specific virus. The worrying thing is essentially with this coronavirus is that it's got it's very very infectious, so it spreads very a lot a lot quicker than other viruses, uh, and it has a higher mortality rate than the common viruses that we get in the kind of seasonal variation in uh, across across the world. Um, and because of that, if a lot of people are going to get unwell very quickly, there's no healthcare system in the world can cope with it. So people are not going to die. Well, they are going to die because of the virus, but unfortunately, a lot of people are going to die just because there wasn't the right equipment available at the right mm. time. Um, and that's that's the big worry. So the unique thing in this is the the respiratory kind of aspect of it, right? Is that um, straight away you get very, very ill and then you need a ventilator. And actually, we don't have enough ventilators available. So essentially, yeah. So it's, it's not even straight away. So essentially, there's a high chance. Well, this, this infection affects your lungs and is basically causes uh, bilateral pneumonia. So infection in both lungs. The... It's, it rapidly can deteriorate and that normally what happens is that when you get the infection, you actually start getting your first symptoms at around day five, day six. That's when you realize you've got an infection five days after you actually, the infection actually started. But within a matter of two or three days, you go from, I've got a fever to, I can't breathe anymore. Uh, and uh, essentially that's when we're yeah, needing oxygen, needing ventilators. And that's the big problem is that we've got a lack of ventilators for the people that are going to need, so, because so many people are going to need it so quickly. And so this is what we're we're trying to flatten the curve by staying inside isolation, that kind of thing. What does that mean, flatten the curve? Because that's thrown around everywhere. So, so what does that even mean? Yeah, I try and not use that phrase, but unfortunately, okay. it comes out every five minutes. I'm talking; it's coming right. out. So essentially, right. it's uh, we've got a. Uh, what's going to happen is that the number of infections is going to increase rapidly, uh, and essentially, is at the moment. And if you actually look at the curve, the infections are increasing in an exponential mm. uh, pattern. What we want to do is we don't mind people getting infected as long as the curve or the line doesn't go past the point of the, the resources that we have. So we want right. to try and get it to start turning the corner and coming back down or, or flattening at least at the point where um, we've got maximum resources, if that makes sense. So that um, if it goes too high, it means it's gone past the point our healthcare system can cope. Uh, and so essentially what we want to do is want it to flatten it so it goes up but not past the point that we can manage the patients right so essentially um uh, the provision of healthcare needs to always outweigh or, or you know uh, be available um you know uh, more so than yeah. the number of cases that, yeah. that there are yeah it's, it's essentially it's a, fa- it's a pandemic but we don't want a fast one we mm. want to spread it out over the next few months rather than over the next couple of weeks 
Right. I guess my and, and I, I don't know if this is actually useful because a lot of the discussion is around how did this start, and then there's stories of bats and soup and pangolins and um, other like you know wet markets and things like that. Is it is it useful, firstly, to understand where this comes from, and if so, to what extent is this uh, multi-species thing and bats and pangolins being the source of it or something? Is that is it something valuable because then it leads on to all of these Chinese virus and this and that and xenophobia. Um, but is, is that even a useful conversation to understand where it originated from? It's useful to the people that are working on the kind of genetic side, the lab-based kind of work that they're doing on it. It's not useful for me and you. And uh, essentially, we just need to know how to manage it. Um, but the people that are working on the vaccination, working on how to treat it, uh, and essentially working on it from a public health aspect, um, yes, they, they need to know where it came from because it'll make a big imp- have a big impact on whether they can find a vaccination for it, a treatment for it, and whether they can prevent it in the future as well. Um, and the reason for why they talk about it's come from bats and whatnot is because we know that these animals have chron- active coronavirus within their system constantly, and they live without being really affected by it. So they are like basically teeming with coronaviruses. Right. So I guess this this other thing, and I guess we want to, is is this something that was kind of due to happen anyway, in that there's a pandemic every few few decades or something, and basically it was time for another pandemic, and it just happened to be this one, or was it something exceptional about this? Because we've never seen a reaction like this, and this is what, I mean, I guess one of it is that actually we're technologically capable of doing it now. Um, so the, for example, the work from home capabilities that we have now, uh, maybe we didn't have 30 years ago, 40 years ago, definitely didn't have 100 years ago when the um, Spanish flu, I think that was about 100 years ago, um, or am I completely off? Um, but we, we definitely didn't have this few decades ago, so we've been able to kind of do a complete lockdown in a way that maybe wasn't possible before. But is that is that a unique thing to, like, we never did this with SARS and MERS and the other uh, viruses in the past 10 years, so... So the, it wasn't needed for those viruses. Um, so to give you an idea of the previous viruses, so SARS wasn't infectious until you developed a fever. So you could develop the symptoms. You'd start, you could start having symptoms. You isolated the patient straight away. Uh, they developed the fever, but they were in an isolated room. They didn't spread the infection. Uh, the, the reason why this one is spreading so quickly is because you can start spreading the infection five, six, seven days before you've even noticed that you've got the infection. So that's that's why this, there's a big difference in why, why, why we've had ice, um, lockdown this time and not lockdown in the past. Right. Whether whether this was um, due to happen, multiple people have predicted it. I've, I've got senior microbiologists who say that the end of the world is going to happen because of a virus or a bacteria. We know that these viruses are mutating constantly. We know that there's multiple bacteria. We already know of many bacteria that we we have no treatment for at all. So people are dying currently in the world as well from bacteria that we have no antibiotic for. Uh, so um, I guess that's I think a, it was predicted post-apocalyptic that you know there um, there are viruses out there that we could. I mean, do you think coronavirus could be? Um, I, I guess this was something we were trying not to do to allay the fears. But anyway, is it? Is yeah, it we're indulging them it, right now, aren't we? Yeah, that this could be um, because we haven't developed a vaccine for it. And um, I know Trump said things like, "There's a game changer coming with this new 
uh, way of antiviral max- uh, medicines or something, but there isn't a vaccine for it. So is it is it theoretically a possibility that it just rampages out of control? And I mean, we could yeah. <laughs> go ahead. I'll just throw that in for you. I'd say I'd say anything that Trump says is the opposite. <laughs> And uh, the other thing would be actually, so we know that this this current coronavirus, the genome is very stable, so it's not going to go anytime soon. Mm. Uh, this virus is going to stay, it's going to mutate, it's going likely going to reinfect people, uh, but we just don't know at the moment. There is some work being done, there's some positive results with regards to forming a vaccination. I don't think this is going to, this current virus is going to cause the end of the world, but I think it's... Uh, yeah, I think yeah. That's, that's very reassuring. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I guess from um, a, from a public health perspective, which is which is kind of your what you're doing a master's in health um, policy. Sorry, health policy, which is basically um, identifying, I guess, what to do on a higher level and systems based, and kind of um, mm-hmm. how do we you know plan for the NHS or healthcare systems. Um, do you think a lockdown is the because if if this virus is going to be around for six months, what are we going to do? Just stay home for six months? So from a from a policy point of view, it's actually very interesting. So I'm not an epidemiologist, so you really want to look at uh, really look at a lot of different factors when considering what kind of policy is best. Um, the essentially the lockdown is just to slow down the spread. Uh, I think I think essentially what's going to happen is that we're going to be on more strict lockdown for the next few weeks, and then they're going to start to relax it. There's going to be more infections, but that essentially. We can't stop people getting infected. We need people to get infected, actually. Mm-hmm. And it's just about managing that. Um, and unfortunately, there's a lot of other things at play as well. So reducing deaths isn't the only thing that policymakers are going to be looking at. They're going to be looking at the economy. They're looking. Uh, they're going to be looking at how, what kind of resources they actually have. Uh, and, uh, yeah, and, and essentially, one of the other big, big, big factors they're looking at is how compliant their population actually is. So compare the UK population versus the Singapore population. And you have to do a compl- have a completely different policy because the Singaporeans will listen to the government, mm. the British people won't. Yeah, yeah. Right, okay, so um, so let's let's zoom in into the UK then. So you, Dr. Sven, you're, um, you're the head, the lead for advocacy at BIMA, the British Islamic Medical Association. Tell us a bit more about BIMA, um, just briefly, and what, BIMA is doing sort of for Muslims um, and uh, sort of the Muslim response in the UK to this um, coronavirus epidemic. Yeah, so what I'll say is with regards to BIMA, in my opinion, is probably one of the best volunteer organisations in the UK. I have been involved with a few and I'm I'm being biased possibly, <laughs> but um, and just to quickly touch on things along with kind of advocacy, they, they, they generally work on a lot of other things with regards to health promotion CPR teaching, webinars, of kind of ethics and kind of more uh, conferences as well. But what's happened is that because of this coronavirus, um, a lot of the teams have said, okay, we need to focus on this uh, as a priority um, and put the other things on the back burner. The What we tried to do is we tried to get in there early because we knew that the quicker we try and make a difference, uh, the quicker we get start kind of spreading the word about what coronavirus actually is within our community, the more lives were going to be saved. So very early, we tried, we, we, we got a few of the team together and started essentially spreading the information about uh, how to prevent infection. 
So um, it was really about educating the, the masses. Um, and is and the, the team made up of uh, healthcare professionals or just uh, the public or who's um, who's involved in spreading information? So essentially the, the, the team, well, first of all, anybody that joins the British Islamic Medical Association is generally, uh, generally a Muslim and a healthcare professional. And we've got from pharmacists, dentists, doctors, physiotherapists, uh, to hospital doctors, like intensive care consultants and whatnot. Um, so a wide variety of people that are involved. Um, and essentially, because the initial stage was to prevent infections, it was a, a handful of doctors that got involved, that, that were well, actually already involved in BMI and said, let's get some um, material together so that we can kind of promote it and make sure that people understand what they need to be doing and what and exactly right now. Um, um, there's, so, there's, yeah. there's been some resistance from certain groups. Have, have you guys found any mosques that outright rejected it? Because I know there's been a little bit of pushback initially from the community where some people said, no, we can't just close our houses of worship. And then they realized the severity of the situation and uh, and said, actually, um, yeah. So I mean, I think essentially that was the the kind of we noticed we know we knew that from um, events happening elsewhere, for example, in South Korea and in, in, in Iran, that we knew that in congregational uh, activities the infection was spreading rapidly, and basically people were dying because of these events. So what we realised was that um, we're, a, we're a very communal community. Uh, congregational events are very important to us, particularly in, in the mosque. We have a high proportion of elders going to the mosque, and elders were particularly at risk from this virus. So even though we knew we were going to get some negativity and some pushback, we said this was a priority for us, and we had to make sure that we didn't suspend prayers, but we spread the information about what this scenario was um, and uh, made sure that everyone had the facts. And by everyone, I mean the scholars, uh, the, the senior imams across the UK. Um, and it was essentially, it was a discussion. From our point of view, we were advising on what the scenario was with regards to the virus, what the likelihood was of the infection spreading within our community and the death toll that we were looking at and discussing about what the best thing would be to do for the community. Um, and it was, it was actually quite reassuring about how many people um, were willing to take that information on board. Yeah. And, and uh, take, yeah. And unfortunately, there was always going to be some that disagree. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, they've got their points of view. Um, our, with, our goal uh, with Ramadan, so, yeah, with Ramadan around the corner, um, what does Bima have in plan sort of in store for, um, for guidance, further guidance? And, uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so essentially Ramadan's coming, but there's so many more aspects still to tackle. Um, if I can just mention in that when you look in the streets, people aren't staying at home. No, when not you, at all. You know, so essentially we've not got that message across yet. Uh, and no matter how many times you explain it, no matter if the politicians are telling you, the doctors are telling you, the ulama are telling you, people are still going out, still going to work, still socialising. So actually Ramadan is around the corner, but it's not the main issue at the moment. It's that we need to try and make sure that we flatten the curve, stop the spread and get people to stay at home and try and figure out how to get that into their head. I think there was a bit the of confusion. Also... Sorry, go ahead. 
No, no, you were going to say there's confusion. I, I think what? initially there was some confusion about, yeah, what, you know, what to do socially. So, yes, we, you know, we, um, we need to practice some social distancing, but, you know, we can mm. go on walks as a family and, you know, people's perception of what family is is different. So, you know, um, they'd go out, they wouldn't, they wouldn't just go out with their immediate family, but they'll go out with their extended family. And obviously that has more implications. Um, so I think mm. that there has been that confusion and, and the people that I have been seeing on my way to work um, are, you know, either either people doing some exercise or you can you know families going for a walk etc um which actually hasn't been discouraged as of yet has it really yeah so essentially um they are advising you know kind of to, to do exercise um but make sure that they're, they're kind of keeping uh kind of well, keeping social distancing um the about only leaving the house if absolutely essential the, I think the reason for some of the confusion has been, again, uh, uh, how you can change the behaviour of a population. If you were to, to be honest, we didn't want to stop everyone moving around straight away anyway, because we did want some people to get the infection. But there has to be a gradual change from you're free to do whatever you want to gradually slowing down, move, uh, restricting movement and restricting social contact. Um, so... I can see why there's been a bit of confusion, but there has had to be a kind of tailored approach in the advice. Mm. Otherwise, to be honest, nobody would have listened if they went straight for lockdown. Well, yeah. I guess and this is it, it wasn't the right thing to do either. This is mm. with with, for example, in China and Wuhan. What we heard for quite some time was that actually, if you or even I think in Italy now, they're saying that if you leave the house, um, there'll be drones following you, um, and and that kind of thing. Which I think some of that I just don't see that happening in the UK because. Um, that sort of draconian measures wouldn't go down very well and um, everyone would make 1984 jokes. But I guess if it is a process, right? So, you know, um, it, you know, we can't implement that sort of strict policing instantly. But actually, if things aren't being well controlled with these gradual measures, then you never know actually what's around the corner and what might be implemented. Um, so that's why, you know, there's like a massive, move, massive stay at home movement in the dentistry world. There's a massive uh, drills down movement. So, you know, we're not carrying out any sort of dental treatment, etc. So um, I guess that's why, you know, we, people are pushing for that so that we don't get to that point. But, you know, that's not to say that we will if this continues to, to kind yes. of. I, I guess, would you informally discourage people even from going out for a run or something? Because, I mean, I, I've tried and gone out once um, since I've started working from home and one of the things is that actually it's very hard to avoid being within two meters of other people um especially yeah. if it's a bit crowded especially if you live in a town or city center yeah so i think we wouldn't discourage um people to go out unless they were in a circumstance in circumstances whether they weren't able to maintain social distancing because what would happen is that if you were to get people to stay within four walls for the next <laughs> four weeks um, yeah, there's, there's going to be other issues which are going to happen anyway. So the mental health aspect comes into it, um, right. and it's already having an impact on people's stress and anxiety levels, which we've actually published. Uh, well, kind of sent out some information just within the last couple of days as well. But this is going to be a big issue within the coming weeks to months, if not years. Uh, and there's going to be different aspects of mental health that's going to be uh, an issue. Absolutely. So, yeah. So essentially, we need to be looking at that. Um, so I wouldn't discourage people, but they do need to make sure that they're uh, yeah. uh, practicing social distancing. Um, and uh, I, just talking about the mental health, essentially that's what we're really kind of looking after this kind of, after we've got people to try and stay at home, we need to be focusing on making sure that we're 
keeping people's mental health in, in the best state as possible, getting people to understand how to manage their mental health and talking about mental health bereavements as well. A lot mm. of people are going to die. We're not scaremongering. A lot of people are going to die. People are going to die and they're not going to be able to be at their parents' janaza or they're, they're not going to be able to be with their elders or their family members when they're in hospital. They get admitted. They might not see them again until the burial. There needs to be a lot of conversations here about uh, what they should be expecting. Uh, they should be looking at anticipatory care pathways to say what would this person like to have done to them if they were to get unwell. There needs to be chats about wills, um, bereavement counselling. There's a lot of aspects here that are going to need to be approached now, actually. Yeah, I um, mean, sorry, just to just jump in there as well on, on the topic of mental health. I mean, I, again, so um, I work in um, community dentistry. And uh, for us at the moment, because we put our drills down, um, things are very, very quiet. Um, we're not seeing, you know, we've resorted to... Um, uh, purely emergency care we're not seeing any routine treatment um or, or you know appointments you know similar to gps at the moment um but because we've not got very much to do at the moment um there has been you know talk of uh, redeploying us into into community hospitals around the county to to help essentially and for me personally that was a huge source of anxiety because you know, as a dentist, you don't train in, in, you know, general hospitals and it's it's a massive thing to be, you know, um, put in an environment that is not uh, familiar. Um, and this isn't just specific to dentists. It can happen to dental nurses. It can happen to other sort of professions within the NHS that are going to be re rejuggled essentially because obviously we need people that are capable um uh, on the front line um, but at the same time we need to make sure that everything else in the background is is functioning as well so to me that was a, a, a quite a big source of anxiety um, and you know things like uh, getting involved in was it advanced care planning that that you mentioned mm -hmm. yeah so yep. yeah so you know uh, things like we're expected to get involved in things like that and um, you know so a lot of that is definitely overwhelming um, and I think the NHS has has a lot to a lot to to do. I think it is working really hard. I mean, our response so far. Um, what would you actually it would be interesting to get your insight? What how's our response been so far? What 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 how how have we responded pos positively? And what do you think um, we need to sort of work on in terms of our response as the NHS? You can speak on behalf of the NHS. <laughs> well, I think. Uh... Unfortunately, the NHS was on its knees before mm. COVID-19. So I can't blame the NHS. Um, we can blame the people that have underfunded the NHS. Uh, and I think, to be honest, the the staff of the NHS, I think they're second to none. I think probably the best staff mm. that you can get anywhere in the world. Having worked in Singapore and seen NHS from afar, and work in different and work in different health systems as a volunteer in other developing countries. I think the efficiency of the NHS is phenomenal. The so how well we've been prepared. Unfortunately, our staff are at high risk because we don't have enough protective equipment. So more doctors, nurses, dentists, you know, ophthalmologists, optometrists are going to get unwell and potentially die because we don't have an equi the right equipment. The And we've already spoken about resources within the hospital. Mm. Uh, when we look at, we've you know, per capita, we've got half of the intensive care beds that Italy do. 
So this so, this is this is like a major kind of. Do you think this will kind of revitalize and push the government into doing something? Because we've had uh, past ten years of essentially underfunding, where NHS funding has cut back more and more, and um, and and do you think this will be kind of something that will galvanize us to finally do something and actually do it in time? Um, to order enough kits and things like that, or do you think this will be a? So will the NHS survive this pandemic? Yeah, basically. Actually, it's the opposite. If you could blame COVID nineteen for multiple uh, deficits within the NHS, that's actually quite handy. This is me speaking personally and yeah. not from a Bima point of view. Um, I but so from that point of view, is it going to galvanise the the politicians to kind of you know invest in the NHS? No, they don't. They don't care. The NHS is a political toy, mm. uh, and uh, unfortunately, that is the case. And I work in private sector and NHS, um, so I can see things from both sides, and I can see where things are actually progressing, and see where things are actually regressing. And unfortunately, I think this is just going to speed up the process. I guess this is a. I mean, it's it's a, obviously that's a very um, true, sad, and I guess conclusion that really should should wake us up is that if we want the NHS to survive as an institution and to continue to use it, we need to wake up. Um, but there has been some positives um, from a community side in terms of people coming together. Um, some of the efforts that BIMA have done um, to kind of activate communities and help elderly people and things like that. Uh, one of the things I wanted to close on was um, NHS has launched a volunteering campaign. So they want a quarter of a million people I think quarter of a million. Yeah, I think that was a target um, to have them sign up as NHS support. Um, I've uh, uh, and and I've seen the list of that, and you know some of the things are like getting medicines around and things like that. Um, is there a risk to kind of the lockdown of uh, of this? Is this really um, something that should be done, or is this? Do you think this is a result of the? of uh of the of the underfunding is that the nhs isn't able to take care of it and actually they're using this volunteering campaign to cover up or is it more of a um just trying to get people activated and no i i think that the nhs is extremely understaffed and it needs um all the hands it can get to be honest which is why um and uh, ahmed you're 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 a medical student and obviously you can talk a little bit about how it's affected your training um, and just trainees around the country. But, you know, people are getting pulled in from here, there and everywhere because help is help is needed. Um, there just aren't enough people generally. And also with this virus, people are, you know, those that are getting sick and having to stay at home um, or those that are just self-isolating because the family members, you know, um, show, got the symptoms. So there are just less people. We need more hands on deck. So I think that's I think that's probably that, that was probably created out of desperation. Um, would you agree? Yeah, I think yeah. so. For for um for us, I'm a fourth year medical student, so four out of five years, and um, so finals are next year. For us, we still have a lot of curriculum content to catch up on, and so that's all gone online. Um, they've cancelled our placements, so we're not going to hospital now. Um, they have told us about sort of volunteering and uh, in our local communities, but nothing in hospital at the moment. What's different is for the final year medical students. Um, so some have passed their exams. Um, some have had their final exams postponed or cancelled altogether. And I think that those um, students, the health secretary, uh, Matt Hancock, he 
mentioned how they'd be brought to the front line. And I think front line was a poor choice of words because they wouldn't actually be put with um, the COVID-19 patients. They'd just, um, uh, you know, help out with the other, you know, other patients in other wards. But yeah, there is a sense of um, desperation in sort of let's get as many hands on deck. And uh, it's it's not sort of, it seems to me, like a half-baked um, thing of trying to get um, medical students, family or medical students to sort of act as, you know, pre-foundation doctors. So some are calling mm-hmm. it F0 doctors, so F1 <laughs> or F1 doctors are, um, you know, the first year foundation. Um, F0 is, yeah. Uh, so I think there's, it's, I mean, it's a bit sort of clutching at straws, I think, because um, you're throwing, you know, throwing these medical students at the deep end and again, Dr. Sufyan mentioned how there's not much PPE protective equipment mm. um, available for the um, healthcare staff working currently, let alone, you know, thousands of other medical students to be brought on board. So, yeah, there's um, a future is unclear at the moment. Mm. If I can say, but as in the, another positive of COVID-19 is, like you said, the altruism that our population and our communities are showing. So there are multiple people wanting to volunteer. We're getting emails constantly saying, how can we help BIMA? How can we help the community? We've got mental health care teams getting together to try and all focus as a, as a national response to this. We've got scholars getting together. We've got the body councils across the UK getting together. It's actually a uniting force, which is actually a positive. Yeah. Absolutely. No, I agree with that. I think mm-hmm. we definitely need to end on a, on a positive note with this podcast. Um, but I think I think the take home messages for me, um, you know, from from having this, this chat with you is that, you know, um, it is serious. The consequences are serious. We need to take the advice seriously. Um, but at the same time, you know, we need to be a lot more self-aware about uh, how this is going to take a toll on not only our mental health, but the mental health of people around us and genuinely to just be there for each other um, wherever possible, whether it be professionally within the NHS or whether, you know, whether it be within the community or the wider community, the Muslim community, etc. And I think, yeah, I think that's definitely something that inshallah we need to, to, to all to all work on. Just knock, you know, I was going to say knock on your neighbour's door, but not if they're self-isolating. <laughs> well, you can you can stand six uh, six feet away, but I, I guess that sorry that comes back to that question of um, this two hundred fifty thousand volunteers. Um, I've I've signed up, um, you know, got help the NHS. Um, do you think that that's something we should encourage people to do? Because it sounds, I mean, ultimately, I get that what you're saying about desperation and things like that, but in the short term. The NHS has been underfunded. It's not going to be able to cope without these volunteers. Um, and and can I? I don't know. Do the do the medics in the room agree that we should encourage people? Yeah, that we should encourage people to sign up I mean, and uh, volunteer. I would say, yeah. What 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 do you have to say? <laughs> Definitely, yeah. As many hands on deck, but just in terms of protecting these volunteers and mm. making sure that um, that whatever they do, they're not you know, exacerbating what's, you know, the, the spread of the uh, virus and that they're well-trained and that they, you know, I mean, there's uh, 250,000 volunteers. That's a lot of, I mean, that's, that's yeah, wartime um, efforts. But mm-hmm. I think that um, it just needs to be sort of well-organized and just make sure that the volunteers they're bringing on aren't um, expendable or sort of, yeah. Right, yeah. Well, I guess in the okay. next few weeks, I'll keep you guys updated on... Uh, 
on what happens as we do future episodes. Stay on safe, Akhid. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Ali, do you have any concluding comments? Um, I think you've covered most. There's a serious situation. There's a multiple reasons why we're in this scenario. Follow the advice that the government's giving. Stay at home. Help if you can, but only if you are well. Um, and uh, there's some difficult times ahead, I think. All right, really appreciate that. I wanted to throw in a plug for our good friends at Islamic Finance Guru. They've said that um, they do Islamic wills, and I think we talked about Janaza's funeral preparations. Um, and one of the things they're offering with their wills is if you're an N- if you are an NHS worker, um, it's a pay as much as you feel you can afford policy. Um, so if you want, uh, I mean, you know, as as Muslims, we always want to have our wills ready. I'm not being uh, grim about this. Uh, you know, the prophet. Uh, we 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 try to think about this consciously so little plug for them is that on their website islamicfinanceguru.com um, you can get your will done so that's something we talked about janazas have those conversations about organ donation uh, and all those things um it's, it's very it's very important and serious and um hopefully we'll be doing a few more episodes to cover this you can follow the british islamic medical association at british ima um all one word on twitter on facebook um, and uh, you can reach out to them as uh, as Dr. Ali said, they've been inundated with some requests, so um, I'm sure they can uh, point us in some directions for uh, where to go for volunteering or helping, or maybe they'll just tell us to stay home because that's the best thing to do. Um, you can listen to us uh, on Spotify, uh, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you can also email us at podcast at themiddlewest.co.uk and you can reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, um, at the Middle West Podcast and at the at Middle West PC. Um, this has been your host, Dr. Musa, for an episode of the Middle West Podcast. With that, salam alaikum. Waalaikumsalam.